This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So I don't necessarily think that the media has learned all of the lessons that they should have after four years of Donald Trump, but I will say that there has been some progress, right? I mean, the fact that there was even a conversation about whether or not it was responsible for CNN to host a town hall with Donald Trump, it does demonstrate that we're at least cognizant of the fact that these are not normal times and Trump is not a normal presidential candidate. But when it comes to other candidates, the media has missed the mark for the most part. Not all media, but in a lot of instances, you still see this liberal yearning to accept all GOP candidates who are not Trump as legitimate just because they're not Trump, when that's really dangerous, right? I don't know why they do this, perhaps for fear of losing access or accusations of bias towards the GOP. But either way, sometimes you've just got to call a spade a spade, and you should especially do that when said spade has identified themselves as such. And I'm, of course, talking about Ron DeSantis. Now, despite him being one of the most openly authoritarian fascists in the Republican Party, many people in the mainstream media and even independent media continue to gush about him simply because he is seemingly more normal than Donald Trump. Here's a couple of examples. What is evident, even after just uh, uh, this limited amount of time in your company, is that you are a competent orator, that you are a successful politician, that you are very appealing, that you've succeeded in Florida. Um, but I, I was glad to see him sit down outside of his bubble because then it helps him look more electable. I mean, it, it's one thing to do a, a Joe Rogan interview or kind of the fringes. It's another thing to sit down with a, a consummate journalist. And I think today he was able to handle those questions and deal with them. And although I don't, I don't believe in his policies per se, but he actually looked decently presidential today. Liberals stop normalizing fascist challenge. Impossible. They just, they have to. Now, those two short clips are really a microcosm of a broader issue that I'm seeing where liberals try to convince themselves that DeSantis isn't really that bad because he's more respectable and articulate than Donald Trump. And to be clear, many mainstream and independent media pundits have, I think, adequately assessed the danger level of Ron DeSantis. But still, you see this overall effort, maybe not necessarily an effort, but the sense from a lot of pundits to try to sanitize his record and sanitize him simply because he's not Donald Trump. And that is very dangerous. Yes, Trump may behave like an unhinged buffoon. So it's easy to identify that and say that is stupid. That's absurd. I want somebody who's more respectable. But DeSantis has also tried to tell us who he is. But there's so many people who don't want to listen to what he's saying, although some people are definitely listening. And they're picking up on the clues that he's leaving for them. But mainstream media pundits and some independent media pundits, I'm looking at you, Jimmy Dore, I'm looking at you, Russell Brand, 
aren't taking the hint that other people are taking. For example, Nazis who support Ron DeSantis seem to have a pretty good idea of his motivations, as do his staffers who retweeted then deleted this video of DeSantis and a Nazi symbol imposed over a flag of Florida with soldiers marching towards it. That's where we're at, where they're using Nazi imagery in his presidential campaign. If that's not a red flag, then nothing is. Now, they deleted it, right? So it was clearly a mistake on the part of his staffers. But I mean, you can't really blame them for thinking that he would like that when, you know, he taps people like this for their policy expertise. They talk about the Holocaust, but the Jews own everything. I thank God for slavery. Mm. I thank God for the crack house. If it wasn't for the crack house, come on somebody, God wouldn't have never been able to use me how he can use me now. And if it wasn't for slavery, I might be somewhere in Africa worshiping a tree. As the video stated, that was Kim Daniels, an openly anti-Semitic preacher who DeSantis placed on his African-American history task force. In other words, she is helping DeSantis shape education for Florida, for all of Florida. And you can already see the effect that she's having because as Chris Walker of Truthout explains, the Florida Board of Education has approved new curriculum standards for lessons on black history that racial justice advocates and educators say will whitewash the brutality of white supremacy and slavery in the United States. The board will now require teachers to tell middle school students that enslaved people gained a personal benefit from the skills they learned under slavery before civil war. Yeah. So that is going to be a huge yikes from me. Apparently in Florida, saying that slavery was unequivocally bad is a bit of a hot take, I guess, right? Don't want to be too uncharitable to these slave owners. Want to make sure that you tell them, oh, they also taught them skills. I mean, for that matter, are we going to talk about how the Nazis, they weren't that bad, I guess, because they let the Jewish people who they abducted keep the clothing that they had on their backs. What are we doing here? Why are we doing this is the question that people should be asking. And I think that we all know why. It's a rhetorical question because we all know the answer. And Marilyn Magar, who's another DeSantis appointee, responded to the backlash saying, actually, we're proud of the changes that they, ma that they made, where we're going to force teachers to tell middle schoolers about the benefits of slavery. But I mean, maybe this task force, all of these appointees that DeSantis himself decided to put there went rogue and they decided to do what he didn't want them to do. Perhaps he wouldn't approve of these changes, right? Actually wrong because he defended this change in particular. Well, you should talk to them about it. I mean, I didn't do it, and I wasn't involved in it, um, but I think, um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into, into doing things later, later in life. Um, but the reality is all of that is rooted in whatever is factual. They listed everything out. And if you have any questions about it, just ask the Department of Education. You can talk about those folks. But, I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was um, that was done politically. So he's okay with it. Interesting. You know, I don't know what you call this, right? What do you call someone who says that they are okay with teachers being forced to tell students the benefits of slavery 
after they already banned an AP African American Studies course from the school curriculum. What do you call that person? Hmm. Maybe it rhymes with Macist. I, I don't know if I could think of the accurate descriptor that's charitable, of course, because we've got to be charitable to these folks. I'll let you know. It's just, what are we doing? It's so ridiculous. Now, his campaign also boosted an ad that portrays him as the most homophobic and transphobic GOP candidate. And that video stood out to me not only because I was in it, but because of how brazen it was. Right now, it happened again. I'm in another Ron DeSantis ad along with the leftist mafia and other leftist content creators like Farron Cousins and David Pakman. And like that last ad that we talked about in a different video, not going to rehash that. You can watch what I said about that. I'll link to it down below. But anyways, um, like that last ad, they basically play clips of us talking about how DeSantis is worse than Trump because he's more capable and smarter than Trump, more cunning than Trump. Uh, so here is an example, just so you kind of get a sense of the way that that ad goes, uh, because it's five minutes, so we can't watch the whole thing. So just here's like a little snippet, so you get the crux of the ad. I honestly believe DeSantis was forged in hell. There's no doubt in my mind. Look at my face. We think DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump, to some degree because he's less incompetent. If anyone out there thinks somehow he is any better than Donald Trump, then they don't know Ron DeSantis. If you thought Donald Trump was bad, you got another thing coming. He may actually be able to do a lot of the things Trump merely wanted to do but failed to do. DeSantis is somebody who will work in the dark, work in the shadows. He will still accomplish what Trump wants to accomplish. Maybe he's going to do things in a quieter manner, but believe me, the end result is not going to be good. But he will do so successfully because he's not over the top. He isn't in your face. He doesn't have a lot of baggage. So, I mean, you get the point, right? They're trying to take these criticisms and own it. Oh, you think that I'm scary? That's right. You should be scared of me because unlike Trump, I can actually get things done. And that is basically the essence of the ad. But there's a couple of correct criticisms in there. I mean, all of those criticisms are correct, but there's a couple of criticisms on there that go a little bit further. And you would think that the team wouldn't want to own these particular criticisms, considering the fact that they detail the threat that DeSantis poses to democracy and his authoritarian tendencies. But they included this in the ad as if it's a good thing. Let's watch. Ron DeSantis would be far more dangerous than Donald Trump. DeSantis is an even greater threat to democracy than Trump. He's a threat to our democracy and a threat to he's a threat it is beginning to feel less like a governorship and more like a regime he's running more to the extreme than trump on several issues the guy who will wield power in a way that extends even beyond what trump did authoritarianism that goes even beyond what trump has talked about those little tidbits were sprinkled in towards the end of the video but i mean they're broadcasting these criticisms and they're owning it Right. His team is effectively saying, yes, we are all of these bad things. We're your worst nightmare. But also, yeah, we do pose a threat to democracy. We want you to know that DeSantis is an authoritarian. I mean, if the policies weren't evidence enough, here's us admitting effectively in a roundabout way that, yes, he does pose a threat to democracy in the same way that Trump does. Be fearful of us. This is what DeSantis's team is broadcasting to all of us. They're saying, look, they all think he is a threat to democracy, teehee, because he is. Now, let me be extremely clear in case my words are used in another ad by his team. 
Hi, everyone, if you're watching. Uh, Ron DeSantis isn't just a fascist. Ron DeSantis is a Hitlerian fascist. Use that in an ad. That's a good soundbite, I think, right? Just own it. You're already basically saying it. Just come out and say it. Ron DeSantis is a Hitlerian fascist, and he's proud. He's proud that he models his governing style after demagogues like Viktor Orban and literal Nazis during World War II. And I'm not saying that he's like a carbon copy of Hitler, right? There are differences between DeSantis and Hitler. But I mean, if you like Hitler, if you're a neo-Nazi and you're a fan of Hitler, well, he's your fascist. He's your guy. He is unquestionably the closest to you ideologically. His team has made that clear. That's not what I'm saying. That's what they're saying. So rather than seeing the good in him, if you're a mainstream media or independent media pundit because he's not Donald Trump, see what's actually there when we remove Trump from the equation, because that matters too, right? When people tell you who they are, we should believe them. And Ron DeSantis has repeatedly told us all who he is. He is an authoritarian fascist because he wants to do bad things, in particular to marginalized people and consolidate power. But yet, we don't listen to him when he repeatedly tells us who he is simply because he's not Donald Trump. But let's listen to him, because if he's this brazen now, when he's trying to get elected, imagine how bad he's going to be after he's elected. So if you're a neo-Nazi, I'm sure his repeated dog whistles to you make you feel really warm and fuzzy. But to the rest of society, we should take that as a serious warning that we're in danger if this individual gets elected. But yet, if you're Russell Brand or you are Bakari Sellers or your other mainstream media or independent media pundits, he's not Trump. So he's smart. He's good. Not Trump. So that's all that matters. Look at the bigger picture. Right. And also look to history, because if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. Well, folks, I just got back from the theaters seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm about to review both of them. I'm going to tell you which one of these is the best blockbuster of 2023 and which one is maybe the worst. I bet he loved our movie, right, Ken? For those of you who can't wait that long, I'm going to give my review of the Barbie movie in the most Oppenheimer fashion. What the f***? Run. You just watched 39-year-old political commentator Ben Shapiro desecrate a Barbie doll in protest of the movie's supposedly woke messaging. Now, listen, if you all want to make me really mad, go buy a bunch of my merch and then burn it. I will be seething if I see that you're doing this. Please do not give me money. Now, listen, that clip was just a small portion from his 43-minute-long review of the film after his producers supposedly dragged him to see it against his will while he was ironically dressed like Ken. But regardless, he described it as one of the most woke movies he's ever seen and adds that they say the word patriot Hierarchy 10 times, which I'm going to assume is an accurate count considering the fact that he brought his handy dandy notepad with him to the movie theater so he could take notes as he rages about this movie. And in that 43 minute long video, he vocalizes his anger with this movie and he does say he was very angry because of this film because of how woke it was. And not just that it was bad because it was woke, it was bad because he thinks it's a bad movie in general. We'll get to his actual review, but the reviews of his review are in, 
and people seem to think that he's maybe being a little bit too melodramatic here with nearly 28,000 dislikes on his video and him reiterating again that he definitely didn't want to see the movie guys but his producers made him he swears now this tantrum actually made national headlines for example Newsweek reports Ben Shapiro mocked for dressing like Ken to hate watch Barbie film the Daily Mail reports conservative pundit Ben Shapiro sets Barbie on fire during excoriating 43 minute review even AOL published an article talking about his tantrum and if AOL is talking about something then you know you've done something noteworthy and there are so many more headlines but the headlines they kind of answer the question that you're probably thinking why do this why embarrass yourself for views and clicks and that's why because attention is good even if it is negative even if you do something that is going to humiliate yourself but i don't necessarily think that he is self-aware enough to realize that this was very embarrassing for him not for the Barbie movie. Now, just last week, he railed against the live action remake of the Snow White film for casting a non-white character as Snow White. And this week, it's Barbie. Next week, it'll probably be Teletubbies or some shit. Conservatives do this, like they focus on children's cartoons and movies that are popular because they don't have anything serious to say about policy. And this is easy content, right? It gets them attention, and that's why they do it. If you don't actually have any solutions, policy solutions to problems that affect normal working-class Americans, then you do things like this. In fact, Ben Shapiro isn't alone. United States Senator Ted Cruz has also been on the warpath against the supposedly communist and woke Barbie movie himself, but he hasn't been able to get nearly as much attention as Ben Shapiro. But that's because, Ted, you've got to up the ante. Right. So if Ben Shapiro burns a Barbie doll and that's getting him a lot of attention, then you've got to take the outrage further. Film yourself shitting on a Barbie doll or shitting your pants in the movie theater while you watch the movie. And I promise you, if you do that, none of us are going to remember Ben Shapiro's little stunt. But back to Ben Shapiro, because he responded to the Internet mocking him. But before I show you that, we'd be remiss to not at least hear him out. Hear some of his biggest gripes about the movie. And again, he wants you to know that he did not want to see this, but his producers forced him to see it. So without further ado, here's another portion of Ben Shapiro's review of the Barbie movie. So the things I do for my audience, my producers dragged me to go see Barbie movie, Barbie the movie. This movie is a flaming piece of dog piled atop an entire dumpster on fire, piled atop a landfill filled with dog It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I was sitting there with a bunch of my producers. I'm a little bit more political than my producers. My producers were watching this, putting the politics aside. It is a bad movie. So why is it getting 91% on Rotten Tomatoes? Because the way that it works for the reviewers is if you have the right politics and those politics are sufficiently slyly inserted, then it will get a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, even if the thing is just direct. And I mean, boy, is this direct. This is a, this is a Death Star-sized piece of direct. Well, folks, wasting two hours of my precious time, two hours I will never get back, two hours around my deathbed, I will wish that I had not spent that time doing, makes me viscerally angry. But I'm going to talk to you about something that makes me much happier, and that is our trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of the show, ExpressVPN. Great choice, ExpressVPN. Very good person to sponsor. Hey, if you want to discreetly watch the Barbie movie without having to come up with bullshit excuses like my producers made me see it, go to expressvpn.com slash Ben Shapiro so you can illegally download the Barbie movie while hiding your IP address from your internet service provider and you can watch it privately and then just shut the fuck up about it. And either love it or hate it, but you don't have to make a big deal about it. ExpressVPN. <laughs>
that's actually a good pitch. No, but basically what he tried to do there was be very likable. And he tried to do, I guess, like a wish.com impression of Moist Critical, where he comes up with these really edgy, sometimes funny analogies to describe his feelings. So he's like, oh, it's a dumpster fire inside of a dumpster fire. But at the end of the day, he wanted you to know that it made him angry. But the review itself isn't even the amusing part to me. His response to the response to his review is what's genuinely hilarious to me. So first and foremost, on the Monday episode of his show, he makes it clear that he is definitely not mad that everyone is making fun of him. And he's actually a little bit shocked that so many news outlets covered his embarrassing behavior. And he also denies that he was dressed like Ken, which is very important. I put out this tweet and everybody loses their mind. I mean, loses their mind. There are articles about my review of this movie in sources as diverse as Newsweek, NBC News, The Daily Beast. Everyone's covering the fact that I did not like this movie and that I made a video in which I parodically Oppenheimer bar the Barbie materials. I take like a match and I light the Barbie stuff on fire. And this apparently is terrible. How? No, no, it can't be. The reaction to me burning a Barbie car with like a Barbie and Ken in it is like the reaction of the Islamic world when someone burns a Quran in Sweden. It's totally crazy. I don't even, like, wow, guys, wow. I mean, there's an article in NBC, NBCnews.com. The internet is roasting Ben Shapiro for hate-watching Barbie while dressed like Ken. Apparently being dressed like Ken now amounts to you wear black jeans and a black shirt. And the question was whether I had purposefully worn that outfit to the Barbie movie. No, I hadn't seen it, guys. That's just what people tend to wear a lot is like a, you know, like a black T-shirt and black. I didn't realize this was like a rare and unique bird it was like it was like a it was like some sort of rare pheasant in the wild to wear a black pair of jeans and, and a black shirt when i go out yeah it in any case i mean sure it might be a coincidence but also despite your insistence that you definitely didn't want to watch the movie and your producers made you watch it let's be very clear I think that he was probably feeling a little bit of FOMO, right? He saw how everyone on social media was going to see Barbenheimer and they were dressing up like Barbie or Ken. And he just didn't want to admit that he wanted to participate in the fun. So, you know, that's his plausible deniability. And look, it's, it's entirely possible that him dressing up exactly like Ken is a coincidence. But I think it's obvious that he just wanted to participate in this pop culture phenomenon, but he needed some excuse in case anyone saw him seeing the Barbie movie after he previously said that the Barbie movie was woke garbage and nobody should see it. But after his extremely contrived overreaction to the movie went viral, he's now essentially saying that everyone else is overreacting to his reaction. So he's pulling out one of the uh, typical no use in response to everybody mocking him. For example, he tries to claim at a different point during that same discussion, uh, something that I find very hard to believe. Let's watch. There's a really serious undertone to a lot of this stuff. I mean, I actually got some death threats over the barber. I'm not kidding you. There were people on, on Twitter who were literally tweeting out about like, can we do something about this Shapiro? Like over a Barbie movie. Oh, okay, so now everyone else is taking the Barbie movie too seriously, not the guy who purchased Barbies to burn them. 
everyone else is taking it too seriously. Now, I've got to say this. I feel like this is pretty obvious, but somebody vaguely asking if we can do something about your tweets is not tantamount to a death threat, Ben Shapiro, you fucking snowflake. But he probably made that up to kind of invert the conversation. So he doesn't look like the drama queen. Rather, everyone else does, because clearly if somebody is making a death threat towards somebody simply because they didn't watch or didn't like a movie that they watched, yeah, that they're they're pretty ridiculous, right? Now, I don't believe him, but he added this via Twitter, which is also funny. I'm sorry me not liking Barbie is happening to you. Ben, I need to make this abundantly clear. Nobody cares if you like the Barbie movie or not, okay? We're amused by your tweet because it is humiliating. It is self-degrading, and it demonstrates how out of touch you are. You know how we mocked you for buying a single piece of wood from Home Depot and that you, that you put in a plastic bag, or how you angrily read out the lyrics to WAP on your show and inadvertently revealed that your wife has a dry pussy. This is one of those moments, Ben, where everyone is laughing at you because your thirst for attention has backfired once again, and you are proving to everyone that you are not a serious person despite your desire to be viewed as serious by people in the political realm. But I want to be clear here, it's not just about him and conservatives who are complaining about the Barbie movie or other woke movies wanting attention. It goes beyond attention, right? The goal ultimately is to hijack cultural phenomenons like this and kind of cash in on these types of pop culture moments in order to build up cultural relevance that the right has never had in America. So perhaps convincing filmmakers to not go woke allows them to assert their cultural dominance in a way that they've never really been able to before. I mean, Ben Shapiro has literally tweeted, go woke, go broke himself. But I mean, that's just not true. And the Barbie movie kind of proves that, right? Despite all of the conservatives screeching about the woke man-hating feminist Barbie movie, it was massively successful. And Ben Shapiro was not alone here. And the reason why the movie was so successful, despite conservative warnings about it being woke, is because normal people don't actually give a shit about whether or not a movie is woke or not. But conservatives have always been culturally irrelevant and what they say about pop culture is largely disregarded for obvious reasons because of things like this. So in order for them to be able to participate in trends and cultural phenomena like this that may seemingly run counter to their political and ideological predispositions, they have to shit on things that people like in order to engage with it so that way they come off as cool contrarian outsiders rather than puritanical losers that nobody wants to be around, right? They don't want to miss out. Ben Shapiro wants to see the movie. He wants to do Barbenheimer like everyone else is doing. So in order to do that and not look like a sellout or a poser, you've got to do it in this stupid, hyperbolic way. But I think that they bit off a little bit more than they can chew with the Barbie movie because, I mean... You really don't want to call something woke unless you know it's going to be unsuccessful. And that way, if you say it's woke and then it's unsuccessful, then you can kind of prove go woke, go broke holds. But that didn't happen in this instance, right? They probably thought the movie wouldn't do well, but it surpassed everyone's expectations. And rather than just shutting the fuck up and watching the movie or not watching the movie for that matter, like normal people, they instead tried to spoil the fun for everyone else by acting like buffoons in order to find some way to jump on the bandwagon and leech off of the popularity of this film. But even if Ben Shapiro got the attention that he wanted, well, not all attention is good attention, and this attention is only going to make him look 
more foolish to regular people and hopefully turn them off to his regular political content. So keep up the great work, Ben, because you're doing fucking great. And I'm sure that when people see how you reacted to the Barbie movie, they're also going to take your political views seriously as well. So please keep doing shit like this, conservatives. It's definitely helping your cause. 20 minutes ago, I had my last sip of water for the day alongside Dolores Huerta, who has joined us here today. Um, Dolores, uh, alongside Cesar Chavez, founded the United Farm Workers, and we try to honor that legacy uh, today uh, because we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of a bigger arc of, of history. And so as I engage in the strike, as we stand out here in the sun and even the rain all day, uh, we remember those we've lost, we respect one another, and we hope uh, and demand much better. You just watched a portion of a protest and vigil by Texas Congressman Greg Kazar that he hosted to draw attention to the climate crisis and specifically how it affects workers in Texas. Now, he staged a thirst strike to protest a bill that Governor Greg Abbott signed into law on June 14th that could literally kill workers in Texas who work outdoors. As NBC News reports, as Texas sweltered last month under a weeks-long record-breaking heat wave, the state passed a law that will eliminate mandatory water breaks for construction workers in cities where such ordinances had been in place to protect people from extreme heat. House Bill 2127 passed the state legislature and Governor Greg Abbott promptly signed it into law on June 14th. The bill, which goes into effect in September, strips construction workers in Austin and Dallas of the right to water breaks every four hours and time to rest in the shade while on the job. The new law comes as Texas endured three straight weeks of high humidity and triple-digit temperatures in June. Such intense and long-lasting heat waves are expected to become more common in a warming world, climate scientists have said. So climate change is here, and if we're not going to stop pumping greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere or even reduce it, then at a minimum, we have to adapt to the reality of climate change, right? And we have to do that right now, yesterday, actually. States need to adapt by making accommodations in a number of areas. For example, cities could establish cooling centers for low-income people who don't have air conditioners. Prisons need to install air conditioners immediately. Believe it or not, most prisons in Texas don't actually have air conditioners. And of course, outdoor workers have to have laws mandating that they are able to take water breaks. Anyone participating in the sweat economy where they work outdoors, they need to have these types of protections. But rather than being proactive, Texas is going in the opposite direction, and they're making things worse as the climate heats up. And things are going to get worse. The climate is going to get hotter. Extreme heat will become more common, especially in states like Texas. But don't take it from me. Take it from climate journalist Jeff Goodall, who articulates the dangers of extreme heat in a PBS NewsHour interview. Well, based on your research, how hot can it get? What should we expect in the years to come? That is a really good and important and difficult to answer question. We know we can talk about general warming of the planet averages, but what we are seeing now and what we saw, for example, in the Pacific Northwest in 2021 when there was that extreme heat wave that killed 1,000 people, it got to be 121 degrees in British Columbia. I mean, no climate models predicted that. It was like snow in the Sahara or something like that. So what we're seeing is as we mess with the atmospheric dynamics of the planet, with 
by putting by burning fossil fuels, putting more CO2 into the atmosphere, we're changing the dynamics in ways that we're not, we can't really say where the next heat wave is going to hit, how brutal it will be, how long it will last. And it's a little bit frightening. Uh, in fact, it's more than a little bit frightening. It's very frightening because, you know, could it get to 125 degrees in Texas? No one knows. 125 degree heat in Texas. That is unfathomable. And I feel like most people haven't grappled with the reality that our planet is literally becoming uninhabitable before our very eyes. And we're all just going on with our daily lives as if this isn't an existential threat to all of us. And I mean, if we're not going to do anything about climate change, if we're not going to try to stop it, the very least that we can do is try to adapt to these new conditions. So that way its effect will be less deadly on all of us. But politicians are so cruel that even that's out of the question. And the end of mandatory water breaks for outdoor workers seems especially cruel considering that they're going to bear the brunt of these changes. But the legislation that Greg Abbott signed goes even deeper than just that because as NBC News continues, the measure has been nicknamed the Death Star Bill because it broadly preempts legislation at the local government level if it clashes with state law. The bill covers eight areas of government, including labor, business, and agriculture, overturning local ordinances that are already in place and preventing local governments from passing new ones if they conflict or deviate from state regulations. So it's not like Greg Abbott was saying, fuck you specifically to the outdoor workers. They're basically collateral damage here. And the goal with this legislation is for him to consolidate power ultimately and take them away from blue cities who are trying to protect workers. But they're trying to stop that. And it's not just the outdoor workers who are going to deal with the repercussions of this. I mean, stripping away protections for renters means that if you become unhoused during an extreme heat wave, what's going to happen, especially if you're vulnerable, if you suffer from asthma. But Representative Greg Kasar gave us some additional details about this new law, and he explains at the end of this clip here why Greg Abbott is doing this. So we passed multiple protections for renters against discrimination and water breaks, and the governor just signed a bill called the Death Star Bill. We didn't just name it that. They call it the Death Star Bill. Like they're proud of being the, the bad guys in yeah. Star Wars. I mean, that's I mean that's how it is. They're proud of being horrible. And the Death Star, you know, we destroy planets in Star Wars. Um, and what this Death Star does is it destroys and bans all worker and renter protections in the state of Texas that are local. So it got rid of the water breaks laws. It got rid of the eviction protections laws. It's trying to get rid of those anti-discrimination ban the box laws. Um, and so that is, and the question of why would he do that? It's just, that's what the big money yeah. uh, corporate lobby wanted. And so yeah. that's what Greg Abbott did. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. He's doing this because that's what corporations wanted. So corporations destroy our planet. They then lobby the government to remove protections to save us from the destruction that they caused. And we're all just supposed to be okay with this. And we are because we've been conditioned to accept this as normal, even if it is not normal. But I mean, welcome to late stage capitalism, my friends. And to be clear, I don't wanna make it seem like this is only the result of late stage capitalism specifically. Capitalism isn't bad just when it gets to this stage because capitalism always has a trajectory, right? It always ends in fascism. And it's bad, not because sometimes it's worse than other times. It's bad because it always gets to this particular point. When you establish an entire economic system that prioritizes profits over people, this result right now is inevitable.
So Greg Abbott, like the good little stooge that he is, is doing this because his corporate sugar daddies want him to. But politicians would not be able to get away with these crimes against their constituents if people actually held them accountable. But the one who's being attacked here, ironically, is Greg Kasar for daring to shine a light on these human rights abuses taking place in his state against his constituents. And I want to show you what I mean by that. So in response to him announcing his thirst strike, these blue check Twitter users are the first replies that you see. Magamom asks, how is anyone to take you serious? Meme Headroom says, please leave Texas, go ruin some other state. And then you have a gif of a clown. I'm assuming they're saying that Greg Kasar is a clown for daring to care about his constituents. Seeing that enraged me because you have this member of Congress who's actually trying to do something good for the people that he represents. And then the first thing that you see are these responses from losers who paid to have their stupidity elevated on Twitter. But I do want to make it clear that that's not the totality of the response. There were a lot of people who responded saying solidarity. Thank you for doing this. But I mean, still, the fact that anyone can look at what he's doing and say, no, that's bad. I don't want you to protest the end of mandatory water breaks for workers. I mean, it just speaks to a problem that we have in this country where people are willing to let politicians who harm them off the hook and they attack the people who are trying to fight for them all because of tribalism and hyperpartisanship. I mean, why are mandatory water breaks all of a sudden a, part a, a partisan issue? Are there no Republicans who participate in the sweat economy who work outdoors? I mean, he's fighting for these people and the response is vitriol and anger when that vitriol and anger should be directed at the governor who signed the legislation that could get their friends and family members killed if they do indeed live in Texas. So, I mean, they may be partisan hacks, but the thing about climate change is that it doesn't discriminate based on your political affiliation. It affects all of us, right? But I wanna not just hyper-focus on the negativity, even though it blew my mind, but the real point in me covering this video, of course, is to amplify the message of Greg Kasar and the individuals who he was working with here. So the event was organized by multiple organizations such as United Farm Workers, the Texas AFL-CIO, and others, uh, but the ultimate goal is to apply pressure on the Biden administration to take action. So as Julia Conley of Common Dreams explains, on Monday, Kesar led more than 100 Democrats in the House and Senate in writing a letter that called on the Biden administration to establish a federal standard through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, to prevent heat-related work injuries, illnesses, and deaths. OSHA is working toward releasing a standard, but currently the agency does not require rest breaks for workers, and the lawmakers urge the Biden administration to mobilize all of the resources necessary for implementing the standard as soon as possible. The campaigners at the Capitol on Tuesday called for requirements for employers to provide workers with adequate water, breaks, cooling areas, medical services, and training to identify heat-related illnesses. So listen, at the end of the day, Republicans are going to Republican. That is, they're going to do everything in their power to inflict as much pain and suffering on people as they possibly can because that's what they want to do. But what matters ultimately is that the White House since we have power currently, writes this wrong by establishing federal standards to make sure that these workplace protections for people who work outside, they don't just go the way of the dodo because 
Republicans in certain states don't care, right? It's an easy political win for Joe Biden going into the 2024 election. But more importantly, it's the right thing to do because climate change induced heat waves are here to stay. They're going to become increasingly common. And if we're going to not try to stop the planet from getting warmer at a minimum, again, government should at least try to mitigate our suffering as the planet literally cooks us alive for as long as they possibly can. And it's sad that that's how low the bar is, but even the smallest ask is a very big ask in the dystopian world that capitalism has created for all of us. So yeah, we'll leave that there. We've previously talked about how certain attempts to censor LGBTQ plus content haven't gone so well. I mean, sure, there's lots of book bans across the country, but some of them have backfired in tremendous fashion. For example, Utah Republican Ken Ivory drafted a bill that later became a law that allowed parents to challenge any book from school libraries that they deemed inappropriate, with the intent obviously being to embolden anti-LGBTQ plus bigots. But after the Bible was challenged and subsequently banned temporarily, Ken Ivory literally called on Utah's legislature to amend his own bill in order to prevent that from happening again, which is something that he should fear considering the fact that the Book of Mormon is also up for review in Utah and could be banned as the Bible was. But now we have another instance, and perhaps my favorite, where an attempt to censor LGBTQ plus content, it backfired. And really to say that it backfired would be the understatement of the century. So let's talk about it. So this pride display at one San Diego library set off a firestorm, even though it is incredibly meager. In fact, it's so small that according to the New York Times, Adrian Peterson, the manager of the Rancho Pinasquitos branch of the San Diego Public Library, was actually a little embarrassed by the modest size of her Pride Month display in June. Between staff vacations and organizing workshops for graduating high school students, it had fallen through the cracks and fell short of what she had hoped for. And sure, it's a little lacking, but I think that she's being too hard on herself. Really, it's the thought that counts, right? It's just a little something to make LGBTQ plus people feel seen at a time of heightened bigotry. So, you know, I appreciate her sentiment here, but this display is adorable. It's cute, even if it is very small in size. Uh, but regardless of how small and meager this display was, two local moms, Amy Vance and Martha Martin, were absolutely apoplectic at the sight of this fucking display. And they were so mad that they decided to take action. So what did they do? Well, they decided to check out almost all of the books from the library that are all LGBTQ plus related. They couldn't get them all, obviously, because some of them were already checked out. Uh, they couldn't find all of them, but they checked out as many as they could. And they held those items hostage until the library agreed to pay a ransom. So <laughs> when I say pay a ransom, what I really mean is they demanded that all LGBTQ plus related books be removed. Otherwise, they would never see those LGBTQ plus books that they checked out again because they were threatening to never return them. So um, we've, we've, <laughs> we've got a bit of a kidnapping situation going on. And they even sent a ransom note to the library via email, which reads, 
As taxpayers in the city of San Diego and longtime library patrons, we are writing to protest the Pride Month display in the children's section of the San Diego Rancho Pinasquitos Public Library. To protect our children and the community, we have checked out the books in the Pride display. We plan to keep these books checked out until the library agrees to permanently remove the inappropriate content from the shelves. Flags, signs, and book displays based on how adults experience sexual attraction and gender identity have no place in an open and public space for children. Now, what they're doing is deeply bigoted and unserious, but I have to admit, it is genuinely hilarious. I don't know if we've ever had a situation where books have been held hostage and then a ransom was, was demanded in the form of a policy concession from the library. But just to kind of show you how insane these two moms are, these were some of the books that they were holding hostage that they thought were offensive. One of them was Morris Micklewhite and the Tangerine Dress, which is a book about a little boy who loves using his imagination, but he also loves his classroom's dress-up center specifically because of the tangerine dress that he likes to wear. Wow, I mean, this is functionally pornography, and uh, how dare the library put this in the kids section? This should be in the 18 plus section. But there's another one. Julian is a mermaid, a picture book about a boy who becomes inspired by seeing people in mermaid costumes. I mean, hearing about this, I, <laughs> I'm i deeply offended because, I mean, think of how many kids have been transed by seeing this book. If they see it, boom, like that, they'll be trans immediately. I just, <laughs> how can you not laugh? Because these people are so unserious that even if what they're doing is deeply bigoted and wrong and immoral, it's just, this is what they're throwing a tantrum about. Now, there's reason to believe that these moms weren't acting alone because the New York Times points out the text of their email was identical to a template posted online by a right-wing group called Catholic Vote, which is an office in Indiana and is not affiliated with the Catholic Church. The group has promoted a Hide the Pride campaign that encourages supporters to check out or move books that depict LGBTQ characters and families. Organizers have described such material as pornographic and obscene and said it should not be available to young library patrons. So, I mean, I joke about how Morris Micklewhite and the Tangerine Dress is functionally pornography, but they're literally saying that unironically. They think that these children's books where a kid wears a dress who happens to be a boy, uh-oh, sounds kind of gay, they actually think that that is tantamount to pornographic content. It's just insane. But the fact that their email matches the... Uh, the uh, template posted by this group, that's very conspicuous, right? And it's interesting how little this group is hiding the fact that they just want queer people to go back into the closet. I mean, hide the pride is basically a synonym for get the fuck back in the closet queers. So it's not about kids. Obviously, this is about them being bigoted and not wanting to see LGBTQ plus content, wanting LGBTQ plus people to go back into the closet and to not be seen. However, to the chagrin of these bigots, the tiny little pride section that they were outraged by is now going to grow bigger than it has ever been before. Perhaps it'll be the biggest one in the area specifically because of their little stunt, because they got the attention that they wanted. These moms who decided to hold this entire LGBTQ plus section hostage, they got what they wanted, right? Because when you do a protest, you want all eyeballs to notice it. But unfortunately, 
this did not lead to them getting support. It led to the library getting support. So the story was picked up by the San Diego Tribune and went semi-viral in the area, which put it on the radar of San Diego City Council member Monty Von Wolpert. And what happened next is absolutely mind-boggling. The New York Times continues, in San Diego, supporters of LGBTQ rights were quick to counter opponents. The city council member who represents Rancho Pinasquitos, Marnie Von Wolpert, condemned the library protest against Pride Books and asked the community to help restore the display. Stacks of Amazon books containing new copies of the books the protesters checked out started to arrive at the library after the San Diego Union Tribune reported on the protest. Roughly 180 people, mostly San Diegans, gave more than $15,000 to the library system, which after a city match will provide over $30,000 towards more LGBTQ-themed materials and programming, including an expansion of the system's already popular Drag Queen Story Hours. And here's the best part. At the Rancho Pinasquitos Library, the Pride display has since been replenished. As for the books checked out last month, they were recently returned. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. They ended up returning the books that they held hostage when... Um, the people in this community refused to cave to their tyrannical, bigoted demands. You love to see it. And uh, needless to say, these moms fucked around and these moms found out. And they have yet to comment about this story and go on the record after making a big stink about the protest and saying, hey, look at me. All of a sudden now they don't want to be seen because they were just defeated. But not only that, they were utterly humiliated. And because of their actions, well, now... That library is going to have the biggest LGBTQ plus display ever. So thank you for your service, moms. Really appreciate that. Uh, glad that you were able to help out the cause. Thank you so much. <laughs> and this story reminds me of the latest season of The Righteous Gemstones. I don't know how many of you watched that. I'd highly recommend it. But The Righteous Gemstones is a show about a mega church pastor and his dysfunctional family. And in the latest season, his youngest son, Calvin, who runs the youth group, formed this group called Smutbusters, where him and the younger people at the church, they go around and they buy out local porn shops so that way they can stop people from getting this terrible material, right? Uh, the problem with that is the store owners love this and they have vans filled with dildos and sex toys that they don't know what to do with, so they're trying to burn them. And on top of that, the parents of the kids who are part of this group Upon finding out that this is what they're doing, now they think that they're perverts. So, you know, their little stunt backfired, right? They tried to make a statement, and the opposite of what they wanted to happen ended up happening. They did a good thing inadvertently, and this reminds me of a real-life version of that, right? It's, it's relatively semi-satirical in a sense, right? But on a serious note... Um, there have been more than 2,500 books to be challenged last year alone. And this is according to the American Library Association, which is a massive increase from the previous year, which I believe was a 38% jump. So this one anecdote, it's not going to stop bigots across the country from forcing their religious agenda on all of us. But this story is still really important because it demonstrates that the bad guys do lose sometimes, right? When we see hundreds of anti-LGBTQ plus laws pop up across the country and it feels like we've gone so far back with regard to LGBTQ plus rights and acceptance in this country, sometimes the bad guys lose, the bigots get embarrassed. And in an environment where Republican presidential contenders are trying to out-fascist each other and trying to basically be the most cruel, 
to marginalized people. It's just really nice to see ordinary Americans come together once in a while for a good cause. So good on everyone in this community for doing this. I'm absolutely so elated to hear that they were able to defeat these bigots. And I'm glad that these moms are feeling embarrassed right now because they should, and they should really rethink their, um, their life choices. You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. Um, okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. <laughs> um, if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. And was this documentary evidence, this video, photos, eyewitness? Like, how would that be determined? The specific documentation I would have to talk to you in a skiff about. Gotcha. Yeah. You just listened to former U.S. intelligence official David Grush say under oath that the United States government is in possession of not only extraterrestrial spacecraft, but non-human biologics as well. Now, it's not the first time that he's made this claim because in a viral News Nation interview uploaded on June 5th, he also alleged that the government has a secret UFO retrieval program and actually has quite a number of spacecraft from non-human species and also says that they've recovered bodies of non-human human pilots, but that's not all because as Forbes reports, Grush stated that the vehicles were not necessarily extraterrestrial and speculated that they might come from another dimension, stating, as somebody who studied physics, where maybe they're coming from a different physical dimension as described in quantum mechanics, Grush hinted that some of the alien beings were malevolent and had even killed humans. Grush also implied that there is some kind of secret agreement between the government and aliens and that people have been murdered to protect the secret. And he he claims that he received this information from senior intelligence officials who confided in him about the program that he is blowing the whistle on, though he admits that he hasn't seen any photos, but he does have documents that confirm the existence of this program and the existence of the spacecraft of alien nature, allegedly, but he can't release this evidence to the public due to the classified nature of these claims, although he does confirm that we can trust him because, as he puts it, I am for real. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting here at great personal risk and obvious professional risk by talking to you today. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm convinced. And I think that we need to get the crew who stormed Area 51 in 2019 back together to further investigate this because the government is not going to tell us. But what we do know is that if we Naruto run, we can move faster than their bullets. So let's see them aliens. But on a more serious note, listen. I want to believe. I desperately want to believe. I think that what he's saying is really interesting. And the idea that we've been visited by aliens and the government has formed some sort of alliance with them is very compelling. It's stuff out of sci-fi. And I love sci-fi. I love Star Wars. I love Mass Effect. So I'd love for this to be true. I'd love to um, think that it's happening. I want to believe. But unfortunately, I don't. 
one person telling us to trust him because other people told him it's true and that he should trust them is not a sufficient standard of evidence for such extreme claims. And blurry videos of UFOs are also insufficient evidence to confirm the existence of aliens. Sure, you know, our government can't explain all visual phenomena that they see, neither can all of us, but sometimes, you know, it's a balloon, sometimes it's other spacecraft, sometimes it's an airplane, but there are some instances where we can't describe what we're seeing because we just don't know. But not knowing what something is doesn't automatically mean that it's extraterrestrial, right? When I was a kid, uh, you know, sometimes I'd see a shadow in the bedroom in the corner, and I think that that's a ghost automatically. That is, until I worked up the courage to turn on the lights, and then I'd see that it's just some clothes on the floor that I forgot to pick up. Oftentimes, you know, we come to an irrational conclusion automatically before we explore other explanations or even think about what it could possibly be besides what we initially assume it is because that's what we want it to be. And most times there's a rational, admittedly boring explanation for a lot of the things that we're unable to explain. And author and conspiracy theory debunker Mick West poked a lot of holes in Grush's claims in a lengthy 45 minute long YouTube video that I'll link to down below. But here's what I think is the biggest red flag with Grush's claims, according to West. I think the biggest problem with this, other than that these claims are uh, outlandish and uh, ridiculous and don't have any evidence behind them, the biggest problem with this is that these claims have been cleared by the government. This is something I mentioned on the program, but I think it's worth mentioning again in the context of what the claims actually are. Yeah, there's a, a government body called DOPSHA, the Department Office of Pre-Publication and Security Review. When you want to publish something uh, like a TV interview or a book, uh, and you are covered by classification, you, you're, you have a security clearance, uh, even if you've left the government, you have to go through DOPSA, and they have to look at this thing before it's published, this pre-publication, and do a security review. So they've got to look at it, and they've got to see, does this reveal any classified information? And so they looked at everything he said. They looked at things, and they said, oh, yeah, okay. So he's claiming that uh, the U.S. government is killing people. He's claiming that uh, aliens are killing people. He's claiming that there might be a secret agreement with aliens. He's claiming we have all these alien craft and we've been reverse engineering it and we've been illegally giving this uh, technology to industry. This is another thing he said. We've been illegally giving this technology to industry and use it, allowing them to exploit it and then sell it back to the government and make loads of money. And this is, this is, uh, 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 this is going on. Uh, this is fine. This is all fine. This is not secret. This is not secret. Dopsa has cleared everything that he has said. So none of this stuff is secret. Which kind of begs the question, uh, why has nobody mentioned this before? Why has no one mentioned the fact that aliens are killing people? Why has no one mentioned the fact that the US government has this secret program like selling alien technology to industry? Why isn't this actually being revealed? Why isn't it being discussed? Why hasn't anybody raised it in Congress? It's not secret. It's, it's not classified, according to Dave Grush, because it's all being cleared by DOPSA. Uh, so the alternative, you know, to this mystery is DOPS are actually just saying, oh, go ahead, it doesn't really matter. Yes, the U.S. government kills people and has a secret uh, agreement with uh, with murderous aliens. Yeah, that's, 
not a secret, everybody knows that. The alternative to that ridiculous scenario is that what he's saying isn't actually true. You know, what he's saying is, and yeah, maybe not a lie from his perspective, but something he has been told that is false. Very good point. And he goes on to make a lot of great points about how these claims, they just don't add up. And I'd highly encourage you to watch the entire video if you have time, because he goes on to debunk not only what Grush says, but debunk UFO videos as well. And it's really insightful. And that doesn't mean that what Grush is saying is incorrect, right? As West put it, he might actually believe what he's saying. But what we do know is that there isn't enough evidence to confirm that what he's saying is indeed true. Now, to be clear, I get the desire to want to believe in something bigger than yourself. You know, when I was younger, I was really into astronomy and I got into conspiracy theories surrounding UFOs and aliens. But the problem that I always had was that there was a fundamental lack of evidence. See, we have a lot of testimonies and fuzzy photos of unidentified flying objects, but nothing concrete to suggest that all of their explanations have been exhausted, therefore it must be aliens. We just don't have enough evidence to say aliens exist. And not only that, that they visited us, right? Those are very big logical leaps that you need a lot of evidence to make. But that's not to say that I don't believe in aliens at all. I mean, when you think about the sheer size of the universe and the thousands of planets that we've found just within the span of a couple of decades, statistically speaking, it's probably likely that life exists somewhere in the universe. I mean, it might even exist in the galaxy, whether it's complex or single-celled organisms. We just, we don't know. We can only speculate, right? And therein lies the problem. It's difficult as human beings to just accept that we may never know. There are countless questions that we will never have answered. It's not just about aliens. Like, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? How did the universe get started? Are there other universes? Are there other dimensions? There's so many theories that kind of try to explain the world that we're living in and as bizarre as it is, but the truth is, we'll never know. But we shouldn't feel inclined to diminish our standards for evidence in our quest for the truth, because if we do that, then it's really not the truth that we're looking for. It's just psychological gratification, right? And if you want the truth, you've got to have a high standard for what you accept as evidence. But we can find comfort in what we don't know. For example, Sir Arthur C. Clarke famously said, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. And that quote really resonates with me. Because on one hand, it's hard to conceptualize this idea that our massive, infinitely expanding universe is empty and we're all that exists in terms of life. But on the other hand, if life was out there based on how much we've learned about the universe and how big it is, it does seem plausible that by now we would have found some evidence of aliens, right? Anything, but we haven't. And that's what we call the Fermi Paradox. Live Science explains, the Fermi Paradox is a problem that asks, where are all the aliens in the universe if life is so abundant? Why haven't we been visited by or heard from anyone else? According to NASA, in just the last two decades, we have found more than 4,000 planets beyond our solar system with trillions of stars thought to exist in our galaxy, most of which host their own planets. Considering life sprang up on Earth, would we not have expected it to start in at least one other location in the last 14 billion years of the universe? Exactly. And it's possible that as good as our technology is, we just haven't been able to look far enough 
into the universe to see the life that does exist. We don't know. Now, the photo that you just saw was of Enrico Fermi, who is the physicist that devised the Fermi paradox. Um, and I really hope that he's wrong, right? I want to live in a universe like Mass Effect, where at some point we can use mass relays to visit other alien planets uh, and talk to other alien species. But I mean, for now, that is just science fiction, period. And I'm not going to latch onto one man's claims simply because it sounds cool. And he is supposedly somebody who we can trust because he is a former U.S. intelligence official. In fact, being a U.S. intelligence official leads me to be a little bit more skeptical given the fact that this community has led us into wars in the past. But I mean, what I'm saying is we need more than that. We need more than this dude saying, trust me, bro, it's totally true. I heard it from a bunch of people who probably heard it from other people. I mean, if Grush claims people have literally been murdered to keep this secret, but yet he can't release the documents due to their classified nature, then we have to assume that he's brave enough to risk being murdered by exposing the secret, but not brave enough to risk prison time by releasing the documents that he supposedly has. So, I mean, my ultimate conclusion is we need pics, bro, or it didn't happen. But let me just end by saying that of all the conspiracy theories, the UFO ones, this is probably one of the least harmful conspiracy theories to believe because unlike anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, you're not going to die if you believe in something like this. It's fun. It's compelling. You know, it's it's sci-fi related, which is really interesting. Having said that, though, there is a concern in the sense that if you lower your standard for what you accept as evidence for this one particular conspiracy theory, and if you believe what Grush says about this, even if it's not harmful, perhaps you're more inclined to lower your standard of evidence for other conspiracy theories, right? And this is kind of how it starts. Accepting one conspiracy theory kind of leads you down the rabbit hole to accepting other conspiracy theories. So what you need to do is make sure that you have a very high standard for what you accept as evidence and be skeptical of everything that you see, right? Ask questions, even of people who are trustworthy. Ask questions of me. Question what I'm saying. Fact check what I'm saying. Because when it comes to the truth, that is important. An objective, empirical reality exists, and you shouldn't muddy the waters just because you want to believe in aliens. I want to believe that aliens are real and they visited us and, you know, they have this secret pact with the government, I think that would be really, really cool. But the fact is, there's just not enough evidence to confirm that what Grush is saying is true. So unless he gives us additional evidence, then we have to deduce that it hasn't happened. Chris Tyson, who was C-H-R-I-S Tyson, is now Chrissy uh, Tyson with a K, and in an interview with podcast host Anthony Padilla says the following. You've had a lot of people speculating on your gender. Yes. You know, just you growing out your hair, yeah. you... I mean, today you you showed up fully I did. presenting I did. as a woman. I did, because I am a woman. Oh, shit! Ah, she hurts. <laughs> You've never said that before, right? I've never said that publicly, no. But I've, I've been fully, like, confident in that decision for over a year now. Okay. He, you are not a woman. You are a man who's going through something. Heart goes out to you, but you're not a woman. And don't confuse the young children watching Mr. Beast that you're a woman because he's presenting now as a woman on Mr. Beast. And these young kids who are just trying to tune in to see Mr. Beast, you know, like clean up the oceans or have somebody try to, he did a funny thing where they're trying to like assassinate me, not for real, but you know, hire a real assassin. 
they want to see the fun antics, now have to watch this guy who yesterday was a man masquerade around as a woman. And everybody's just pretending nothing weird has happened, Dolly. You just heard from has-been and right-wing hack Megyn Kelly, who implied that Mr. Beast is somehow irresponsible because he is going to continue to platform his transgender friend who has been in his videos for years. But now, because Chris is trans, she is calling for explicit discrimination. There's no other reason why she's saying that Mr. Beast should censor Chris. She's simply just saying, I don't like her because she's trans. I mean, would you say the same thing about a Jewish person or a gay person in Mr. Beast's videos? Of course not, because that's obviously bigoted. But when it comes to trans people, discriminating against them to conservatives is A-OK -okay because currently it's socially permissible and Megyn Kelly just doesn't like them. So she doesn't want to see it and she doesn't want her kids to see it. But unfortunately for Megyn Kelly, trans people exist and they will continue to exist and they have always existed. They are your grocery store clerks, your chefs, your bus drivers, your Uber drivers, your pilots. Perhaps you know someone who's trans or perhaps someone who you know is trans but hasn't told you yet. But kids learning about the existence of trans people is going to happen. It's inevitable unless you lock them in a dungeon forever. But the fear from Megyn Kelly is that if kids learn about the existence of trans people, then they're going to turn trans. But that's not going to happen. That's not how this works. And trans people aren't trying to turn your cis kids trans, contrary to popular belief. But if your kid happens to be trans, then trans people and their allies collectively want them to live in a society where they can be themselves, where they don't have to be ashamed of who they are, even if society refuses to accept them. But Megyn Kelly doesn't just reject Chris's trans identity because she's a bigot. Let's be clear. She's also a simpleton, right? It's hatred, it's stupidity too. And I say that because she couldn't even wrap her mind around the identities of fictional characters changing. So of course, actual human beings transitioning is far too complicated for her tiny brain to comprehend, case in point. And by the way, for all you kids watching at home, Santa just is white, but this person is just arguing that, that maybe we should, we should also have a black Santa. But you know, Santa is what he is, and just so you know, we're just debating this because someone wrote about it, kids. Yeah. Jesus was a white man too, but you, you know, it's like we have, he was a historical figure. I mean, that's a verifiable fact, as is Santa. I just want right. the kids watching to know that. Yes. But my point is, how do you just revise it, you know, in the middle of the legacy of the story and change Santa from white to black? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't. I mean, that explains a lot, doesn't it? If she can't even comprehend changes to fictional characters, then obviously, you know, it makes sense that she can't accept that human beings can change the gender that they were assigned at birth. Now, in the clip that you saw uh, at the beginning of this video, she consults anti-trans grifter Ali London, who goes on to not only repeatedly maliciously misgender Chris, but also makes up egregious lies about her and says that she wants to turn kids trans effectively. Let's listen. Yeah, and it's incredibly harmful because the majority of the audience for Mr. Beast are young kids. You know, young kids idolize this YouTube channel. They want to become like Mr. Beast. They want to become like Chris Tyson. So when you have millions of kids looking at this person that is openly declaring, I am a woman, she, her, and they're also tweeting about taking hormones and how it saved their life. And they're encouraging their young audience to try HRT, hormone replacement therapy. That is incredibly harmful. You know, it's one thing to be struggling with your identity and to try and 
deal with that and find happiness. But it's another thing to project that onto kids. I think that's really harmful. And, you know, I feel for his wife and the baby, because I mean, if you look at him just a year ago, completely different person. What has changed in a year that has made him uh, feel the need to do this and declare himself as a woman? You know, I think it's it's going to be harmful if he continues to be in the videos talking about these things that he's a woman and about hormones and things. You know, it should just be about these fun videos, you know, that kids love, kids enjoy, shouldn't be anything to do with trans ideology. But sadly, I think a lot of kids are going to be, you know, indoctrinated by this and want to become just like Chris or Chrissy or whatever he's called now. This is Megyn Kelly's supposed experts on gender ideology. First of all, Chris did not encourage her audience to try HRT, even if they wanted to, they couldn't because that requires a prescription and a doctor would have to confirm that they have gender dysphoria. It requires a lot. Like you can't just say, hey kids, go on down to Walgreens and pick up a bottle of HRT. That's not the way that it works. Ollie London knows this. Chris simply said that HRT saved her life. That doesn't encourage anyone to do anything. She's just saying, Hey everyone, this is who I am. I'm happy now. And Mr. Beast's videos also, they haven't changed at all. They're still apolitical entertainment pieces for younger audiences. You just refuse to accept that Mr. Beast, like most Americans, doesn't have a problem with his transgender friend. You want him to discriminate, but when most people learn about their trans friend, they're fine with it because guess what? Trans people, they just wanna live their lives. It's you who's the problem, Ollie London, you don't want to accept them, right? And there's this patronizing implication that Chris is confused. This is what both of them alluded to. And, you know, she doesn't know who she is, and they pity her. And they assume that if everyone in society rejects Chris and misgenders Chris and is really cruel to her, that can somehow convince her to see the light and go back into the closet or be who they think she really should be. But what they don't realize is that the most difficult person to convince if you're trans is yourself. The same is true for gay people. And in her interview with Anthony Padilla, which I would highly recommend you watch, she explains just how difficult it was to accept herself. Was it more difficult for you to come out to yourself or to others? Myself. Far more. Once I came out to myself, it, it was, I came out to myself with my therapist and, mm. it, and it took like, it took like three therapy sessions where I was like, I've known this for a long time. I, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure. And then I was, you know, I, I, I know I, and then I was like, I am a woman. And it was, it was hard for me to say that because I was so scared of saying I am a woman and then instantly hearing, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. Because in my head, I fought with that every day. That's the conversation you were having yeah, with yourself. That, there was a voice in the back of my head that just hated me. Everything I did hated me. And it wasn't until like I started accepting myself and being kind to others and like just listening to what my body wanted. Like that's when that voice started going away, started taking HRT. Haven't heard from that voice in a very long time. Where do you think that part of you has gone? I think it's, I hope it's locked away. <laughs> do you think it's disappeared oh, entirely? Yeah. That, person, that little piece of me. You must feel like you have so much more, like, access to the to, to your whole self without I, that part of you shutting you down constantly. I literally had people within the first like couple of months of like me coming out to like private like friends and like my therapist starting HRT. They were like, "You've just been 
talking so much more and you just seem so much more present in the conversation. Mm. And I was noticing that myself too, because like I would get done with conversations and be like, why does my jaw hurt so bad? Oh, but I was talking and smiling? I was talking and smiling. <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. I mean, even now, I feel like people who have watched you for a long time will see that change in you wanting to express your thoughts, yeah. wanting to express your emotions. It doesn't matter now if I want to express them or not. They just freely come out of me because I don't suppress them anymore. Mm. And that is what's truly the best part of it is that I can just like, what comes out of my mouth is me now. Mm. And it's nobody else influencing me. It's nobody telling me I have to be this person. It's me coming out. Beautifully said. You know, they try to misgender her and demean her, but you can tell she knows who she is. She oozes confidence. Trans people know who they are. Gay people know who they are. For queer people, most queer people, I think that the biggest barrier to acceptance is always ourselves first, right? At least that's true for my generation and older LGBTQ plus people because we grow up in a society that tells us that being trans and being gay is wrong. But letting go and accepting your true self is very liberating. It's a great feeling. And there's this assumption baked into that conversation there that trans people are simply hopping on a trend. And we hear this from conservatives as well, right? This is why they don't want young people to know about the existence of trans people, because that will make it seem like it's alluring and they'll want to be trans as well. But they said the same thing about gay people, right? They said that gay people were just being gay because it's cool and it's now, you know, a trend and it's a phase. But it was ignorant when they said that about gay people and it's ignorant still when they say that about trans people, right? Nobody chooses to be part of a marginalized community whose very existence is contentious. In response to a story about a trans teen committing suicide due to bullying, Alejandra Caraballo points out, quote, we're constantly told that too many kids are coming out as trans because it's popular and trendy, but this is the actual reality. Trans kids are usually bullied relentlessly. And that right there is the sad reality. Even though we've come a long way in terms of trans acceptance, life is still much more difficult for trans people than it is for cis people. I mean, we have state governments currently trying to criminalize their very existence, police everything that they do, where they go to the bathroom, what they can and can't do with their own bodies. Families are abandoning them. Everywhere they go, they have to worry about whether or not it's safe to come out to their peers or new coworkers and just be themselves. They have to fear whether or not they'll pass and if somebody who is hateful will suspect that they're trans. But despite all of that, they still choose self-love in the face of societal hate. And that is a very powerful and beautiful thing. And conservatives hate that. They hate that they're losing control of trans people. And despite all of the bigotry, trans people are still choosing to be themselves and be happy despite all of this hate. And to say that it's a trend, like the Grimace shake or the Harlem shake or some bullshit like that, it's not just idiotic and wrong. It's an attempt to delegitimize their very real identities. And I would say that Megyn Kelly should be ashamed, but I mean, we all know that this person has no shame. She's an imbecile and that will never change. And the same is true for Ollie London. But if you want to know about somebody who isn't authentic, 
tune into Ali London's debate with Ethan Klein of H3, where he was exposed for the lying, grifting charlatan that he is. So what they're saying, I, I think it's really projection, right? When Ali London says Chris doesn't know who she is, that's Ali London projecting about himself, right? This is somebody who claimed that they were Korean and wanted to get penis reduction surgery to have that be more like the Asian experience or something like that. Like this man is racist, this man is an imbecile, and he will say and do anything if it gets him attention. And that is what was exposed in his debate with Ethan Klein. As for Megyn Kelly, she's not going to go anywhere, but thankfully she is losing relevance. And it's just sad that she has to hop on these types of bandwagons. I mean, she says that trans people are hopping on trends. Transphobia is a trend and she's hopping on it to maintain relevance. But looking back 10 to 20 years from now, you know, society is going to judge her very harshly for these bigoted statements that she's making. She doesn't care now because it's a short-term benefit, but in the long term, history is not going to like what she's saying. MTG Magazine VP. MTG Magazine VP. MTG Magazine VP. She's a boss. She don't rock with trans people because they soft. Them liberal tears can't save you. Wipe them all. You know we rep at 45. He never lost. That monstrosity was a clip from the music video MTG by MAGA rapper Forgiato Blow, and the goal of said video was to supposedly promote Marjorie Taylor Greene's anti-trans legislation called Protect Children's Innocence Act, which would criminalize gender-affirming care for minors nationwide. And on Twitter, she tweeted about the video saying, I never thought I'd be featured in a rap video, but then again, I never thought the left would be grooming our children. She is so fucking stupid but regardless the lyrics to the song don't really even talk about the bill or mention trans people in general aside from the reference to trans tifa but with regards to grooming i mean there are sound bites at the beginning of her calling democrats pedophiles spliced in so i mean i guess it technically counts it feels like she just was in a music video and just doing that as a lawmaker feels pretty cringe, right? So to me, this is her way of saying, hey, hello, fellow kids. I like rap music too. Do you like rap music? Well, you're going to love this song about my legislation, which isn't really actually about my legislation, but to justify this cringeworthy thing that I did. Well, it's about this bill. There's some broader cause, if you will. But before I show you how people reacted to it, let's watch another short clip. MTG Magazine VP. Democrats get back. Boom. Reporters even get slapped. They're spreading all these rumors because Marjorie be spitting big facts. Deep state in the left always hating. When they gonna let Joe up out that basement? Marjorie, I really love what you do. Keep calling Ronald's out. No one does it better than you, huh? Marjorie, I really love what you do. <laughs> It is so fucking bad. Holy shit. Listen, I don't want to discourage people if they have a dream and they want to follow it. But in the instance of Forgiato Blow, my brother in Christ, you have to stop following your dreams. You just, you, you don't have it. You don't have it, man. You just, you don't got it. Some people have it. Some people don't. You don't have it. Stop, please. Now, listen, I think that the word cringe is used way too much on the internet. But the moment where she was standing there awkwardly nodding, like this moment where she's like, and she doesn't really know if she's supposed to be dancing. Um, that moment right there in particular genuinely made my skin crawl. I don't know what it was about that moment, but you could just tell how awkward and uncomfortable she was. And she wasn't sure 
what to do because she's never been in a music video before. I feel like it's very charitable to call it a music video, but she's never been in that predicament before where somebody is trying to perform and she just sits there awkwardly and reacts. That moment, oof, that was very, very cringeworthy to me. Um, actual cringe. Now, the reaction to that video uh, was mostly negative, with nearly double the amount of dislikes as likes, and he even got ratioed in his own comment section, which is very brutal. So in the pinned comment, he says, let's make the liberals cry, get MTG on iTunes now, and I don't even know who's still buying songs on iTunes in 2023, but regardless, somebody responded saying, no one is crying, we're just just laughing at you and another person replied saying more like fellatio blow <laughs> childish but funny and effective uh, and as you can see both of those comments got more likes than his comments but i mean the rest of the comment section was arguably more ruthless so this person says there's nothing less hip-hop than mtg any song about her should be over a banjo track you make riffraff sound like tupac straight fire man like a dumpster filled with gasoline and probably my favorite damn bro you got a hidden talent let's make sure to keep it hidden and that's just a small sample but still the response overall was very negative which begs the question how did this talentless hack achieve any level of notoriety given just how bad and cringeworthy his music is well i mean there's a couple of reasons um first and foremost money with money you can make magic happen. So his grandfather, Stuart Arnold, founded the magazine Auto Trader, which means that this individual, his grandson, has a lot of wealth passed down to him. And with that wealth, you can promote yourself, you can tour the country, and you can get your name out there, even if you don't have talent. You can try to find some sort of a niche for yourself, carve it out, and have a relative level of success. Now, as Chuds of TikTok points out, he has a Trump tattoo on his leg with the words self-made on Trump's face. I guess it's Trump with a face tattoo. And that tattoo and that saying is incredibly ironic considering the fact that both him and Trump are Nepo babies. But still, I think that this man proves that we don't really live in a meritocracy because if you can, if you have money, you can make anything happen. But to be fair to him, he did have some viral success with his true claim to fame being his boycott Target song that he released in response to right-wing outrage to Target's 2023 Pride collection, uh, which did have a much more positive response. I mean, there were a lot of haters, but the response overall was much more positive, namely due to conservatives discovering his music. And I think that this comment really says it all here. Quote, I thought it was a meme, but the amount of, quote, I don't usually listen to rap, but in this comment section is wild. So in other words, even the dipshit MAGA rapper knows that you can propel yourself to at least a relative level of fame among conservatives by simply pandering to them, regardless of how brazen you are. Even if it feels patronizing with how much you're pandering to them, they're not going to acknowledge that you're insulting their intelligence. And even if they don't like your fucking music, they're still going to listen to you if you tell them what they want to hear. So that's kind of the lesson. But we've kind of gone off on a little bit of a tangent because I do want to recenter the conversation back to Marjorie Taylor Greene because I think that this music video further demonstrates how clueless and out of touch she is. So first of all, if this really is an attempt to promote her legislation, then 
I mean, I feel like this goes without saying, right? You don't do that by doing a fucking music video. You promote your legislation by bargaining with your colleagues in Congress, not MAGA rappers. You cultivate support for it at the grassroots level. You speak to your constituents about this tour the country to promote it. But I mean, since there's no real support for this draconian crackdown on trans existence, she is using that bill, knowing it's not going to pass, to basically pander to the GOP's base in the same way that Forgiato Blow is pandering to the GOP's base, just telling them what they want to hear, hitting them with a bunch of buzzwords, and making it seem like, you know, she's the MVP on the team, MAGA's MVP, if you will. Uh, and the reason why Republican politicians like her have to focus so much on hate mongering and trans people and LGBTQ plus rights and immigrants and uh, anti-white racism and dumb shit like that is because that's just the easy politics, right? It requires no knowledge of anything. Actually formulating solutions to problems that your constituents face is a much more difficult task. It requires a little bit of intelligence that she lacks. And I want to show you really what I mean by that, right? why these MAGA conservatives, the far right, are so bad at what they do. So she gave a speech over the weekend at the Turning Point Action Conference. And in one portion of her speech, if you didn't have the context, if you just had the text in front of you and you didn't know who said it, you would think that this was a promotion of Joe Biden. But here, this is coming from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and this is her attacking Joe Biden. Let's listen. Lyndon B. Johnson is very similar to Joe Biden. How are they the same? They're both Democrat socialists. Lyndon B. Johnson was the majority leader in the Senate. Does that sound familiar? He was vice president to Kennedy. Joe was vice president to Obama. He was appointed as the president after JFK was assassinated, then he was elected. His big socialist programs were the Great Society. The Great Society were big government programs to address education medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and welfare, the Office of Economic Opportunity, and big labor and labor unions. Now, LBJ had the Great Society, but Joe Biden had Build Back Better, and he still is working on it. The largest public investment in social infrastructure and environmental programs that is actually finishing what FDR started that LBJ expanded on and Joe Biden is attempting to complete socialism. I mean, she makes it seem like Joe Biden is the second coming of FDR. And even though I wish that were true, it's simply not. I wish he was a socialist. I wish he actually cared even a little bit about health care, but he doesn't. But she says he cares about health care and labor unions and poverty and infrastructure as if that's a bad thing. She is so out of touch that she thinks that that is going to turn people off to Joe Biden when in actuality she is effectively campaigning for him. And the White House acknowledged this and capitalized on it by tweeting out, caught us, President Joe Biden is working to make life easier for hardworking families. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure that they appreciate the free advertising, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but it's not quite the burn that you think it is to say that the president is trying to improve the lives of working people. Again, I wish that that were true. I wish he didn't break up the railroad strike. I wish that he actually did care and wasn't just doing not even the bare minimum, but just a little bit to help us. But the fact is that Joe Biden is not good enough.
But yet she's like, oh, no, no, no. He's trying to finish what FDR started. FDR was elected so many times that we instituted term limits. Okay, he died in office because he was so popular. They are so stupid and so out of touch. But that's a good thing, right? Even though these are very dark times and we see very Orwellian and draconian bills being proposed, we have the advantage in the sense that our political opponents are deeply unserious political hacks. And that's a good thing, right? They might be really good at throwing red meat to the GOP's hateful base, but at the end of the day, they're not very effective at accomplishing what they want to legislatively, at least at the national level. Now, it's a different story at the state level, right? Because that doesn't change the fact that even if Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't very effective as a lawmaker, well, there are still hundreds of Marjorie Taylor Greene replicants in positions of power in states across the country, and they actually are able to enact their hateful legislation. But nationally speaking, we still do have the advantage, which is something that I think shouldn't be lost on us, right? And even if that alone isn't going to save us from a fascist takeover, it at least buys us some time, which matters when the stakes are so high. So look, I'm glad that Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to star in a dipshit MAGA rapper's music video because it's not going to help her legislation, but it does at least give us the opportunity to laugh at her and demonstrate to everyone who doesn't already know what a fucking clown she is. Salem Church in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, hosted a Rainbow Room event, which is something that Planned Parenthood puts on for LGBTQ plus youth, where they typically offer arts and crafts, games, events, and education specifically to queer teens and preteens who don't otherwise have a space to be themselves and just have fun and learn. But the event got on the radar of notorious Canadian troll Chris Elston, aka Billboard Chris, who announced that he'd be protesting the event with Moms for Liberty, saying, quote, I'm going to Planned Parenthood's Rainbow Room Youth Indoctrination event in Doylestown, Pennsylvania on Wednesday evening. Some lovely Moms for Liberty will be joining me along with a journalist or two. Come join our party outside. He then adds, the Rainbow Room brings together 14-year-olds with 21-year-olds to teach all sorts of queer-inclusive sex, Groomer Central. Now, what he's referring to here is sex education. Now, when it's taught in public schools, people think of it as sort of this awkward, albeit necessary, feature of public education to prevent unplanned pregnancies and reduce the transmission of diseases. It is necessary. But when queer youth are taught sex education, it's all of a sudden grooming, according to Billboard Chris. But that's just not true. A meta-analysis published in the Journal of Adolescent Health found that a comprehensive sex education that is LGBTQ inclusive actually helps to prevent child sexual abuse and offers a plethora of other benefits as well. But I mean, he knows that. And even if this event didn't offer sex education, he'd still call it grooming, right? If this was a drag queen story hour, he'd still say that it's grooming because we know that to these types of people, anytime a queer person is in the presence of children, they call that grooming. Or if LGBTQ plus youth gather for a space to have a queer prom or just get to know each other because maybe they don't fit in or they're bullied, they'll still call it grooming. So it doesn't matter what the situation is it's always by default grooming to them so me explaining this is really 
not necessary. It's effectively superfluous information, but to any viewers who don't know why sex education for youth, including LGBTQ plus youth, is good, now you know. Either way, he showed up because he wanted to make a scene, and as LGBTQ Nation reports, Elston showed up wearing a sandwich board that proclaimed children cannot consent to puberty blockers. He also recorded his presence with a selfie stick asking others, can anybody tell me why we should be cutting off the body parts of children? So on one hand, he's worried that this is a grooming event because they're teaching sex education to queer youth, but on another hand, he's going up and asking them why they're chopping off children's body parts. Seems like a very, very good faith actor. I'm obviously being sarcastic, but I mean, the goal, I think it's evident. He's there to antagonize people. He's there to antagonize event goers. He wants to intimidate them. But fortunately, his attempt to gin up outrage did not work. In fact, it backfired tremendously because when he showed up to the event, he was met with a surprise. Newsbreak reports, Chris was met by a crowd of about 200 parents of LGBTQ youth, church parishioners, and members of the community. The counter-protesters were standing on the lawn in front of the church, in the driveway, and on the sidewalk. Some were holding handmade signs of their own with messages like, we love you more than you hate us. In other words, the community was not going to tolerate this bigot showing up to intimidate queer youth who they realize need a space to be themselves, to learn, to you know, be in community with other queer youth because maybe they don't feel as welcomed by their cis and straight peers. They need this. So the community, to the tune of hundreds of people, showed up and said, we're not going to tolerate your intimidation. And you love to see it because this dude, he showed up with a couple of Moms for Liberty momsies. So they were very much outnumbered. It was like maybe 12 at maximum of their protesters, and then you had hundreds of counter-protesters. And that is really encouraging to see. But him and his Moms for Liberty cronies getting ratioed by counter-protesters, it's not even the best part of the story. Because from Chris's perspective, hundreds of counter-protesters showing up isn't necessarily the worst thing ever, considering the types of tactics that he uses to demonize and troll LGBTQ plus people and their allies. So he is essentially a real-life troll and debate me bro, who provokes people into giving him a reaction to which he can then broadcast to his audience on Twitter and say, look at how unhinged these LGBTQ plus people and their supporters are. So let me give you a couple of examples so you know who we're dealing with here. This man paid for a billboard in Vancouver, Canada, declaring his love for notorious transphobe and Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling. He then wore that same slogan on a shirt to a Nicholas Sperling rally, who was a pro-LGBTQ plus politician in Canada. And he did this specifically to provoke the attendees and it worked. And on top of that, he uploaded a video of himself following a woman who cursed at him after he asked her an outrageous transphobic question. And he does this because the goal isn't necessarily to change minds, it's not to have a conversation or debate people, it's to get a reaction and then broadcast that reaction to people for views and clicks. That's the goal. So the prospect of 200 counter protesters showing up on its face isn't necessarily a bad thing for this type of a troll because he now has hundreds of people he can antagonize for propaganda purposes. And odds are at least a couple of them are going to be so outraged by the ridiculous things that he's saying that they're going to give him the propaganda fodder that he needs. But unfortunately for him, 
It did not go according to plan, because the counter-protesters all agreed to a really interesting, albeit genius, strategy. Newsbreak continues, In a brief interview conducted on the street before he arrived at the church, Chris said his goal in traveling to Doylestown was to have conversations with members of the community, but as he approached the church, Chris was met with a wall of silence as nearly everyone in the crowd ignored him. Even when Chris got close to people and tried to start a conversation, he was largely ignored. Most most people in the crowd treated Chris as if he wasn't there. Chris walked up and down the sidewalk holding a phone on a selfie stick to record his interactions. He loudly asked if anyone wanted to talk about the science of transgenderism, but there were no takers. Quote, can anybody tell me why we should be cutting off the body parts of children? Chris asked. A lot of you probably don't believe that's even happening, right? For the most part, the protester encountered a wall of silence and an occasional angry glare from the counter protesters. At previous appearances around the country, Chris has posted videos of people screaming at him and occasionally assaulting him. That may make for good video on the web for a provocateur, but the Doylestown crowd refused to engage. So they decided to not feed the troll, and that strategy was a massive success. And I'll tell you why the protesters themselves are saying that that strategy was successful in a moment. But first, I want to share their reasoning for this particular strategy. So one of the attendees was State Senator Steve Santisario, who represents Doylestown, and he also showed up with solid, in solidarity with uh, queer youth. And he was asked by a journalist about this particular strategy, and what he said was brilliant. He said there was really no point in engaging with someone whose mind is already closed. And furthermore, he suggested that the community was already familiar with the tactics and the antics of Moms for Liberty. So engaging with any of these people was pointless because their goal of being there was not to argue with bigots and transphobes. The goal was to stand in solidarity with queer youth, and it worked. Now, I'll show you why it worked. So you're looking at a TikTok video uploaded by a Doylestown local, and they noted here that Moms for Liberty showed up to terrorize them. And as you can see, there's Billboard Chris right in the front wearing the light blue jacket. And one of the local momsies, Megan Brock, is also there. But then they cut to all of the counter protesters that showed up, and they talk about their strategy of just ignoring him as he walked around with a selfie stick trying to provoke a response from anyone but nobody would give him what he wanted. At one point, he even tried to talk to a dog since no humans would engage with him, but even the dog apparently wasn't interested either. And him being ignored resulted in him and his momsy friends going home since nobody would take the bait. Nobody. So that right there is why they say don't feed the trolls, because depriving them of the attention that they crave makes them go away. They win when you acknowledge their existence, but by not acknowledging them, by ignoring them, you are depriving them of the thing that they want the most, your attention. Again, they don't care about dialogue or debate. Their minds are closed. They just want to make you look silly, and it's impossible for them to do that if you simply ignore them. Now, I want to show you a longer video that he posted to Twitter himself, because you're going to see how disciplined all of these counter-protesters really were, because he basically talks to them sometimes for minutes at a time, but they ignore him and they just keep talking to each other, and you can tell that they were just having a good time. Like, one of the attendees said that they wanted it to feel like a festival on the street, and you kind of get that vibe because people were having a good time despite his presence. Let's watch. Are you proud to have a conversation? You're not. Wow, it's incredible. 
whether you believe in God or evolution, and I'm sure everyone here, being such a science crowd, I'm sure they all believe in evolution. But whether you believe in God or evolution, this makes no sense. If you believe in God, this ideology teaches that God made us wrong. And if you believe in evolution, this ideology is teaching that for the first time in human history, for the first time in 200,000 years, we need a pharmaceutical company to help our children be who they really are. Totally insane. Did y'all see the wheels turning their heads just now? Their brains started to break. They'll come around. Who wants to talk about the science here today? It was the medical bodies, after looking at the evidence, found that there was no evidence to support transitioning children. But none of you care about this, do you? You're totally fine with sterilizing autistic kids, kids who would grow up to be gay, cutting off their body parts. My gosh, we got a true, we got a true cult going on here. What about you, sir? Why do you think it's okay to sterilize kids? Yeah, you got nothing. Ladies, would you like to have a conversation today? Literally never. Literally never. Why? Why can't we talk about things? We can't talk about things? What's up with that? My gosh. Senator Santisario, why don't you want to have a conversation about the greatest child abuse scandal in modern medicine history? Why can't we talk about sterilizing kids? He's got nothing. Amazing. Now, towards the beginning of the clip, those two ladies that uh, he was talking to, they endured his diatribe for, it's got to be more than a minute, right? And I had to cut it down because it was so long. But if you watch the full clip, which I'll link to down below, they just sat there and they denied him the attention that he wanted. And it was brilliant. The willpower that these people have really needs to be commended because if somebody is up in your face with a camera, for me personally, it would be very difficult for me to not tell them to fuck off right but these people they didn't bite i mean a couple of them were like no i don't want to talk to you but i mean as he continued to try to talk at them they just ignored them now there is i think a variety of ways to deal with anti-lgbtq plus trolls uh we recently talked about fascists who showed up to a pride event to intimidate them and they decided to troll them and they challenged them to a push-up contest and beat them i think humiliation is one strategy but with regard to these particular trolls, the counter-protesters had the perfect strategy and they handled the situation, I, I think, ideally, in my opinion. Now, as I stated earlier, the community was already familiar with Moms for Liberty and they already know their MO, right? But I do want to play a speech from a parent from this community. Uh, and she made this speech a couple of days ago before that protest that we uh, just watched. And she basically explains the effect that Moms for Liberty's presence has had on their community and the atmosphere that they've cultivated and how they're finally coming together to push back. And this clip is a little bit lengthy. It's about three minutes, 30 seconds, but it is worth every single second. Moms for Liberty on our school boards and in our community have been coming after our children, our teachers, and our schools for the last two years. And while Central Bucks had always had a Republican majority, it wasn't until Moms for Liberty overthrew our district that our district began to make national headlines week after week and for nothing good. Their policies are responsible for over 70 book challenges and two book bans. The forced removal of a quote by a Holocaust survival, Eli Wiesel, 
the wasteful spending of over a million dollars, censorship of teachers, and an atmosphere of fear and retribution in our schools and classrooms. They are the reason Central Bucks is hemorrhaging some of the best educators around. In addition to their harmful policies, Moms for Liberty on our board have done absolutely nothing to combat real issues affecting our students. They have ignored the mental health crisis affecting our youth. In fact, they have attempted to vilify social emotional learning and empathy as a concept. <laughs> they have done nothing about increased absenteeism and the rise in behavioral issues in our schools. In fact, they stand firmly against restorative practices because, well, it's CRT according to them. They have done nothing about, they have done nothing to decrease gun violence, bullying, and harassment in our schools. In fact, their policies cause an increase in bullying in our schools, specifically and especially from our most vulnerable youth. Students come to every school board meeting to tell them, to express to the school board how their policies have hurt them, and the school board majority ignores them every single time. They belittle them by insinuating that adults have put them up to this. So much so that students now begin their public comment with, by saying that their words are their words and no one has forced them to come there to speak. They have done absolutely nothing to help our students. I've been asked recently, how has this divisiveness affected my community? And my answer is simple. It's not divisiveness. The premise is wrong. There's no divisiveness in our community. There's far-right extremism attempting to rewrite history and erase marginalized groups, and that's Moms for Liberty. There's an effort to weaponize parenthood, and that's Moms for Liberty. There are those who want Christian nationalism in our public schools, and that's Moms for Liberty. There's extreme far-right propaganda machine that has infiltrated hearts and minds of moms and they are moms for liberty. There's a fall battle cry of parental rights that really just means rights for some and only some and that's moms for liberty. There's no divisiveness. In Central Bucks, Woo! Democrats, Republicans and independents are, are working together to push away the fascism breathing down our necks. So this community has been terrorized by this fascist group, Moms for Liberty, for years. And as a result, good people are starting to come together to fight back against these fascist momsies who have infiltrated their community. And not only that, they've brought in outside agitators, outside provocateurs like Billboard Chris to terrorize their own communities, as is the case in Doylestown. But in other communities, they brought in much more nefarious, militarized groups like the Proud Boys to disrupt school board meetings. So Moms for Liberty is organized fascism that has taken over many communities in this country, and it's largely gone unchecked up until this point. And this community in particular, they're demonstrating to other communities that you don't have to just sit back and take it. When you all come together, 
you can drive out the fascists. And driving them away from events like this, it's easier than dismantling the hold that they have on school boards, for example. But I mean, the very first step is for the community as a whole to come together and say, enough is enough. We're not going to tolerate what they're doing. This is fascism, and we don't want it in our community. They are not welcome here. And it looks like this community, Doylestown, is starting to do that. Maybe they're going to be the first community to permanently remove this fascist tumor that is Moms for Liberty from their city. And if they can do that, then I hope that they'll be able to create a blueprint for other communities who are also dealing with the same thing. And, you know, there's going to be a point where Moms for Liberty is so ubiquitous with school board meetings and uh, and all of this that there's going to be blowback. And I think that we're reaching that moment where the blowback is happening because they've kind of just overplayed their hand and they've demonstrated that they don't actually have a concern for the children or the teachers. They just want fascism and authoritarian control. And I'm thankful that people are finally starting to recognize that this is what they're doing. So the faster that other communities wake up and do what Doylestown did, the better off we'll all be. Well, friends, I just want to take a moment to congratulate the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, for a new high score. Woo! Looks like we're going to we're going to go for three indictments, three, three indictments, two impeachments, legally liable for essay. I mean, if racking up legal trouble as a former president were some sort of a game, he would, without a doubt, be the winner. Now, listen, you may get the sense that Trump doesn't pose as big of a threat in 2024 because of all of the legal trouble that he's in. But to the contrary, I just don't think that that's true. It would be true if we lived in a sane world. The problem is that we don't live in a sane world. He is still the GOP's 2024 frontrunner despite being indicted twice. And as ABC News reports, he was just notified by special counsel Jack Smith that he is the target of another probe, which means a third indictment could be imminent. And I don't think any of us expect this to change his status as GOP frontrunner. Now, he acknowledged the latest probe on Truth Social Social, predictably calling it a witch hunt and saying this is tantamount to election interference and the weaponization of law enforcement. Now, normally you would just ignore Trump when he says things like this, right? But the difference from his previous diatribes on social media and this one is that the things that he's saying now, because he is not just a presidential contender, but the front runner for the GOP, it has very specific policy implications. And what he's saying is dangerous. So the subtext of what he's saying there is that since Biden is able to interfere in the election by weaponizing law enforcement to go after his political opponents, well, maybe he should be able to do the same thing if he's elected president again. In fact, this isn't just speculation because he explicitly said this after his second indictment. I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden, and the entire Biden crime family. Name a special prosecutor. And all others involved with the destruction of our elections, our borders, and our country itself. They're destroying our country. So in other words, I'm going to do what I'm accusing the Biden administration of doing, which I said is bad. I will weaponize the Justice Department to go after my political opponents.
Now, don't you think that if he actually believed that what Biden was supposedly doing were bad, that he would instead call for reforms to enhance accountability and transparency and the autonomy of the Justice Department and not just pledge to conduct himself in the same exact way which he deemed as corrupt? Doesn't that seem a little bit weird? No, instead he's broadcasting his intent to do bad things with the excuse being that Democrats did it so I can too. Now, the thing is that these investigations are not political witch hunts. And if Biden had complete control over the Justice Department, don't you think that he wouldn't allow them to investigate him for his handling of classified materials and his financial ties with Hunter Biden? Don't you think that Biden would just shut that down unilaterally? See, the reason why a president could seemingly be investigated by his own Justice Department in the first place is because it is an independent agency. But Trump has signaled that he'd bring an end to the Justice Department's autonomy. How? Well, simply by appointing someone like Jeffrey Clark to the Justice Department if he's elected. Now, for those of you who don't remember, Jeffrey Clark is somebody who Trump tried to name as his attorney general back in 2020 in an effort to help him steal the 2020 election. But Trump backed down after the Justice Department employees threatened him with mass resignations. But if Trump wins in 2024, here's what that means for Clark and the Justice Department in general. As the New York Times explains, Mr. Clark, who was a favorite of Mr. Trump's and is likely to be in contention for a senior Justice Department position if Mr. Trump wins re-election in 2024, wrote a constitutional analysis titled, The U.S. Justice Department is not independent that will most likely serve as a blueprint for a second Trump administration. Like other conservatives, Mr. Clark adheres to the so-called unitary executive theory, which holds that the president of the United States has the power to directly control the entire federal bureaucracy, and Congress cannot fracture that control by giving some officials independent decision-making authority. So this is why what Trump is saying here is more important than his usual diatribe. He could potentially consolidate power and actually weaponize the Justice Department to go after his political opponents. And when people like myself push back, they'll cry hypocrisy or accuse you of selective outrage for not condemning Biden for doing the same, even though Biden did not do that. But to average voters, that argument seems compelling on its face. And that's an issue because it gives Trump the legitimacy that he needs for that type of a power grab. But Trump's ambitions for executive power extends even beyond that, because as the New York Times explains, Mr. Trump and his associates have a broader goal to alter the balance of power by increasing the president's authority over every part of the federal government that now operates by either law or tradition with any measure of independence from political interference by the White House, according to a review of his campaign policy proposals and interviews with people close to him. Mr. Trump intends to bring independent agencies like the Federal Communications Commission, which makes and enforces rules for television and internet companies, and the Federal Trade Commission, which enforces various antitrust and other consumer protection rules against businesses under direct presidential control. He wants to revive the practice of impounding funds, refusing to spend money Congress has appropriated for programs a president doesn't like, a tactic that lawmakers banned under President Richard Nixon. He intends to strip employment protections from tens of thousands of career civil servants, making it easier to replace them if they are deemed obstacles to his agenda, and he plans to scour the intelligence agencies, the State Department, and the defense bureaucracies to remove officials he has vilified 
as the sick political class that hates our country. Quote, the president's plan should be to fundamentally reorient the federal government in a way that hasn't been done since FDR's New Deal, said John McKenty, a former White House personnel chief who began Mr. Trump's systematic attempt to sweep out officials deemed to be disloyal in 2020 and who is now involved in mapping out the new approach. Quote, what we're trying to do is identify pockets of independence and seize them, said Russell T. Vaught, who ran the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House and now runs a policy organization, the Center for Renewing America. So their goal is a complete paradigm shift to fundamentally reshape governments and expand the power of the presidency, thus upsetting the balance of power and further eroding the principles of democratic governance. And that is horrifying because they're just admitting that they're going to do this, right? And Republican primary voters, they just don't seem to care. Maybe they don't know, but if they did know, odds are they probably wouldn't care. Trump is the front runner by far. And once you open the door to this idea that the president has absolute power, absolutely, then really anything becomes permissible. Anything is possible. He even joked about packing the Supreme Court. You know, many presidents never get the opportunity to appoint a Supreme Court justice. I had three. They are going. They are, they are not happy about that. And maybe we'll get three or four more. Can you imagine? Let's get seven. Let's have let's have seven or eight or maybe even nine. Now, to be fair, there's nothing in the Constitution preventing him from doing this. In fact, it's a move that I and others encouraged Biden to make in order to rebalance the court after Republicans stole two seats. But Trump's justification here is that we should do it to trigger the libs, whereas the justification from the left is that we should do it to address the court's legitimacy crisis, corruption and enhance democracy so the court better represents the American people. There's a real meaningful difference there between those two justifications. But that clip gives us some additional insight into Trump's governing philosophy to the extent that he has one, right? I don't think that he has a cohesive view of how government should work or who it should work for. But to him, he thinks that it's not really about the people. It's not about serving the people who elected him. He doesn't want to be a public servant. He wants power so government can better serve him and his thirst for power is only going to grow because it's not just about his ego and narcissism any longer. This is about him getting elected again so he could save his ass from serving any prison time because that executive immunity is definitely going to come in handy if the legal issues continue to pile up. And that is why I say that as his legal troubles become worse, he's gonna become more dangerous, right? As the indictments pile up, his thirst for power is only going to deepen, and that alone is dangerous. But what makes matters even worse is the fact that the Republican Party, they enable him. For example, look at how Marjorie Greene reacted to his indictment, and don't miss the Freudian slip at the end. You're talking specifically about his conversations with officials in Georgia? I'm talking specifically on every single level. He can ask, was there election fraud? I should be able to ask if there's election but fraud. But can he ask them to find a specific amount of votes? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying there's nothing wrong with asking for election fraud. And yeah, he can say, hey, where are these votes? First of all, he didn't ask where the missing votes were. He straight up told Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find him the votes, meaning cheat. 
And you've got to love how she said at the end there, there's nothing wrong with asking for election fraud, because even if she didn't intend to say that vocally, right, we all know that that's how she feels within her heart. But you could argue that Marjorie Greene's opinion doesn't really matter because she's just one Republican politician and nobody really takes her seriously. And I'll grant you that point. But here's what the Speaker of the House and leader of the Republican Party said in response to a potential third Trump indictment. Well, I guess uh, under a Biden administration, Biden America, you'd expect this. If you notice recently, President Trump went up in the polls and was uh, actually surpassing President Biden for re-election. So what do they do now? Weaponize government to go after their number one opponent. It's time and time again. I think the American public is tired of this. They want to have see equal justice and the idea that they utilize this to go after those who politically disagree with them is wrong. But that, that and that right there is why I find this moment so dangerous. It's not just Trump who's saying these things. Republicans with real power are parroting the dangerous things that he's saying. And it's not like this is a new phenomenon, right? But I think that as time goes on, as Trump gets more desperate, the threat increases. And once you kind of accept this idea that Biden weaponized the Justice Department against his political opponents, which again is not true, but if Republicans believe it, then you kind of have to allow Trump to do the same thing if he's in power again. Otherwise, you're just the useful idiot for liberals. Republican voters are never going to allow you to get away with it if you condemn Trump because, well, Biden did the same thing, right? So in conclusion, even if Trump's attempt to move us uh, closer towards authoritarianism ultimately fails, the problem is that he has already legitimized the prospect of authoritarianism. He has gotten GOP voters to think about the end of democracy and us having a dictator, and many of them are comfortable with that, so long as he's the dictator, right? And that in and of itself is bad for democracy. So this crucial moment in America's history is something that I don't want people to take for granted, right? Our government, it might be too dysfunctional to materially deliver anything for the American people or save us from climate catastrophe. But here's the thing. If we lose what's left of democracy, then the small chance we have of making any difference disappears entirely. And I would rather have a small chance to make a difference and save the planet than have no chance because the stakes are very high right now. And even if it is a 0.5% chance, if democracy is so dysfunctional that that's all it affords us in terms of change as people, I'll take that over 0%. And it's sad, but that's where we're at, unfortunately. And I think that we need to be realistic about the situation that we're currently in. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.